Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science Across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we will talk about all things science. And we've got all sorts of science to talk about today. My name's Stu and I'm going to be talking about um, some kind of out there experiments that some neuroscientists have been doing with uh, severed tadpole heads. What? Whoa, and, wait. And Wh- algae. Whoa. Yeah. I thought Halloween was last week. But I'll explain what's the story behind that and why would you be using frogs. But that's a bit later in the show. Claire, what have you got for us? Uh, well, Stu, have you ever racked up a big phone bill? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've all been there, right? Um, it's, it's not like the old days when you no. had, you'd sit there and you'd be on the phone for hours and you couldn't yeah. go anywhere. You were yeah. stuck to the wall. But yeah, yeah. I have definitely o- overdone my my phone call limits on my mobile. Well, some researchers in Russia have actually um, pretty much become um, almost bankrupt. They've lost all their grant money um, because an eagle (laughs) that they're studying has racked up a giant phone bill. An eagle. Doesn't even have a bill. Why? Why? (laughs) It's got a beak. It's It's got got a beak. It doesn't even have a bill. A phone beak. Yeah. Any, anyway. Why are they paying the Eagles phone bill? <laughs> All will be revealed. Ob- obviously, oh. he didn't wait until he could get off beak rates. <laughs> oh, my word. You're a very talented comedian. <laughs> Chris, what about you? <laughs> well, I am going back to, the, back to the past. I am looking at a recent study that... Uh, claims to have found where humans came from in Africa, the the precise location. It's a bit of a it's an Australian study. Um, they use genetics to do it. It's a bit controversial, but then all kind of human origins studies are controversial. It's, it's a very true. hotly contested field. Yeah, and you know I guess there's some political reasons for that too. But you so that, so they didn't just go and look and find a big pile of mail that had just been building up for. <laughs> couple of hundred thousand years and figure out that's where they'd all started from. There was this really big phone bill. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And an eagle on the other side. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Kept kept phoning home. All right. Well, stay tuned for all of those. They all sound very interesting stories. Uh, Stick with us. Frogs have always been a staple of the science classroom. Uh, right, yeah. I mean, frog dissections. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mainly yep. mainly due, you know, their metamorphic life cycle. They change from little fish-like tadpoles into four-legged air breathers. And, you know, it's it's fascinating to watch that happen. You can see yeah. it happen as yeah. they do it. They grow um, legs. They lose their tails. Yeah. It's great. Um, it would be nice to think of the frog life cycle as uh, a metaphor for the history of 
animal life, uh, moving from a watery beginning, swimming around and developing into <laughs> land-dwelling animals. But that's not really how it happened. <laughs> right. But uh, it's, not, it's not entirely accurate. But that doesn't make frogs any less interesting. And aside from the dissection of frogs in high school science labs, other scientists have continued to study living frogs. Um, and one of the biggest transitions a tadpole has to go through in its development is the move from obtaining oxygen from water, where they are born, uh, to being able to survive out of the water and still breathe. So they, they have, have a, those feathery gills, don't they? The they have a number of ways of absorbing oxygen. Yeah. So as tadpoles, they have uh, a kind of, yeah, kind of gill structure, similar to fish, but sort of more external. Mm. But, um, uh, and that's very useful when they're, when they're young and they're swimming around in water. Um, but they can also, even at that stage, absorb oxygen directly through their skin, which is very thin. And they retain that ability when they turn into frogs as well. Oh, okay. Um, so that when they develop into adults, they continue to be able to absorb oxygen directly through the skin while they're in the water. And if they can maintain moist skin out of water, they can absorb oxygen when they're out of the water as well through their wow. skin. So that's kind of the reason why they're sort of wet. Frogs are always a bit oh, moist. Okay. Because if they weren't... This allows them to keep doing their, their call because they can have a circular breathing kind of thing. They can, like, constantly be making noise but breathing in through their skin. Is that what they do? Not really. Okay. No. It's more, of a, it's more, of, it's more that the, the moisture on their skin dissolves oxygen out yep. of the atmosphere, basically. Um, they, they, I don't think they can breathe and call at the same time because they do this weird thing to be able to breathe. So uh, they also have rudimentary lungs which allow them to breathe in larger volumes of air and absorb oxygen that way, but they have to use their throat to inflate and deflate oh, their lungs. Yeah. We've seen the bullfrogs with the whole kind of, yeah, yeah puffing out. Because they don't have ribs, oh. which is weird because they all say ribbit. <laughs> but no, they don't, they don't have ribs, so they have to do this weird thing with their throat where they sort of make their throat bigger and that sucks air into their lungs. So is that... Associated with the call that they make, I think are they they're, they're separate them? things. They're separate they things. can just breathe anyway without making the noise. But so I wonder if they are breathing when they do call. They must be forcing air through some sort of, mm. you know, noise-making part of their anatomy. And they also have a lining in their mouth which can absorb a high degree of oxygen. So that's how adult frogs do most of their breathing Whoa. through their mouth. They just mm. breathe in air in their mouth and it absorbs directly into the lining of their mouth, which I didn't realise. Do they even have to breathe it in or do they just open their mouth? Well, I guess they could just sit around with their mouth open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Catching flies. Yeah. Um, recently, some researchers have discovered another way that frogs and tadpoles may be able to access a supply of oxygen by allowing them to photosynthesize like plants. Wait, what? So, at a meeting uh, of the green. society, yeah, some are some lots some of aren't. brown frogs, mm. all sorts of different coloured. Some frogs. are yellow and black. Um, Shout out to corroboree frog there. Yeah, I was going to say I want some corroboration on that one. <laughs> Recently, at a meeting of the Society for Neuroscience, researchers from Ludwig. Maximilian's University, Munich. Sounds legitimate. Yeah, it's, it doesn't sound like just a back alley no, university. No, no, look, it's 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 an, it's an actual university an actual in university. Munich. Yeah, um, they you revealed it, didn't you? Revealed experiments they had been doing in keeping uh, brain cells alive, um, brain cells in the severed heads of tadpoles. Oh wow! Now, initially, they'd been putting oxygen directly into the blood of these dead tadpoles. 
and that would maintain nerve activity so they could measure it and observe what the brains were doing. So that was the, the basis of their original experiments. But then they talked to some botanists who said, hey, why don't you use photosynthesis to provide the oxygen to the brain cells? And they went, okay. So they went off and got some cyanobacteria, which is a kind of bacteria that can photosynthesize. Uh, and they put that into the blood vessels surrounding the brains of the tadpoles and shone, lo shone light on the cyanobacteria wow. to enable it to produce oxygen, which then oxygenated the brain cells and they remained active. So that instead of putting the oxygen yeah. directly, they just got the cyanobacteria to do it. Is this the first time uh, this has happened? Pretty much. I don't see how it's, it could have happened before. Yeah, you could. it wouldn't be something that would happen by accident. There is a, there is a kind of sea slug that has um, cyanobacteria or some kind of algae, I think, in it that actually allows it to produce oxygen, but this is not something that happens to frogs uh, under normal conditions, should we say. Um, Does it explain the Lord of the Rings ants? Is this... Is this... The, is it they used to be frogs? They and used then they to be frogs? they turned into plants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, cross a tree with Gollum and you get And an you ant. get an ant. Yeah. Um, so the nerve cells remained active as long as light was showing in the tissue. Cyanobacteria produced oxygen as a byproduct of making sugar, which is what cyanobacteria and plants do. They also used a species of microscopic algae to do the same thing. And because the tissues of the frogs they were using are basically translucent, the light can get into where the algae and the cyanobacteria were. So they kept producing oxygen. Wow. Um, now, the medical reason for looking into this is that when human patients suffer from stroke, this is the actual basis of their research, parts of their brains and nerve cells get starved of oxygen and that can cause permanent damage. So what they're trying to do is figure out ways of delivering oxygen directly to those cells, which will uh, provide oxygen fast enough that they might be able to reduce the risk of permanent damage and possibly reduce the severity of the symptoms of stroke. So they do have a valid medical reason for doing this, but it does sound like something uh, out of, you know, a, an old 1930s horror movie where you're, you know, injecting frogs with... Cyanobacteria. Cyanobacteria, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not easy being green. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. don't really have those international call charges any longer because of Skype and WhatsApp and every other sort of like internet-based phone company. Yeah, you just call someone through, through what, Facebook or yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing you, one way you can rack up international fees is when you travel overseas and your phone company charges international roaming. Right. Uh. Yes, you're familiar with international roaming. They're the yeah. charges you accrue for the convenience of being able to use your mobile phone in another 
country. So your mobile phone uses a foreign phone company's infrastructure to give you access um, for a price. Just yeah. like it always is, isn't it? It's always, always for a price. Always for a price. Yeah, yeah. Or you could just, you know, swap, swap your SIM, SIM card, card over. over. Mm, yeah. Much yeah. easier. Yeah. I've, I've learned my lesson yeah. and I just swap my SIM card over. Also, now I'm paying for it. So I'm like, well, look. Now I'm going to keep no. an eye on things. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought my phone charges on my parents' account was bad. But turns out the endangered step eagle from Central Asia has done much worse to the researchers that are trying to save it. Oh, no. I know. Um, so the step eagle has sent these Russian ornithologists um, fairly broke on the research that they're, that they're trying to do by racking up international roaming bills that, unfortunately, they can't afford. How, so How? Did, what? Did, did the eagle steal someone's phone? Is that what's going <laughs> oh, on they here? They can fly to different countries, so they would get roaming straight away, yeah. Yeah, they can fly to different countries. That's exactly <laughs> right. So, okay, let's go back a bit. So, Russian researchers from a conservation network called RRR, Conservation Network <laughs> have been tracking the step eagle, um, which is, you know, it sort of looks like, a bit like a wedge-tailed eagle, but no wedge-tail um, in Central Asia. It's quite large. It eats, you know, brown. It eats um, carrion like our wedgie eats. Um, so they've been tracking this incredible eagle and how they migrate since 2015. When, when they fly, they have carrion luggage. <laughs> um, anyway... They're obviously tracking them because the eagle is highly endangered. Um, so in an effort to bolster conservation efforts, they want to know more about where the eagle is, where mm -hmm. it goes, um, and when they go there. Yep. And there are many things putting these birds at risk, including rapid clearing of forests and land clearing, um, also things like power lines and also wind farms. BirdLife Australia says this, that's one of the main threats to them, um, and poison traps. So this particular research group has been tracking 13 eagles uh, throughout the Northern Hemisphere summer, um, and these eagles are free-ranging, so they have been known to fly through Kazakhstan, Iran, Pakistan, as well as Russia. So they cover quite mm -hmm. a large distance. They can actually even get down into Africa. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and the way that they track them is the researchers attach an SMS tracking device onto the eagles, um, which are supposed to send out um, an SMS about location uh, four times a day, um, saying exactly where the eagle is. So they can... Yeah, so that yeah, you can imagine when you've got giant talons mm. that you know sending text messages isn't exactly easy. Mm. Yeah, so it is automatic. Yeah, and they can't use speech to text either, <laughs> so it makes it very <laughs> difficult for them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, what has happened and why these researchers are now broke um, is that one of their tagged eagles named Min. Uh, went off the radar, totally out of reception for four months. This this isn't unusual, especially when you're in the highlands of Kazakhstan. Um, no alarm was raised, but it just went, just stopped sending those four text messages a day. But that data was being collected. Right. Anyway, um, fast forward to a couple of weeks ago when Min the Eagle um, came back into range. 
But instead of finding reception in Kazakhstan, where it's fairly cheap to send an SMS, Min the Eagle took an international sojourn and uh, ended up in Iran, where he started sending the backlog of SMSs wow. back to base. All so of the all of the unsent messages. All of the unsent messages. All <laughs> they all piled through all at once. So if you can imagine, this was the four SMSs every day for four months. Um, this means a lot of tech me- text messages being sent through international roaming and um, there was nothing they could do about it because it was just going do 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 And um, these, text mes- these text messages were costing uh, more than 10 times the amount that they should have been costing. So with one fell swoop into Iran, this Step Eagle Min totally wiped out the researcher's phone credit uh, for the entire project for all years wow. and all eagles. Wow. Yeah. Um, so now, you know, ornithologists are dedicated people. They're not the sort of people to just give up on an endangered species like the steppe eagle just because of a bad debt. So they launched a campaign online called Top Up the Eagles Mobile. <laughs> And have been successful in getting phone companies in Central Asia on board um, to support them, which they didn't before, but now that the news stories come out about this eagle, you know, um, racking up this phone bill, they're now a lot more willing to step in and be a supporter of the the research project. So the eagle didn't lose its phone privileges. It did not lose its (laughs) phone privileges, although maybe, you know... should get a bit of punishment, like, don't do it again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, maybe less than... Not going to get bailed out by the telcos next time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, who would have thought that a step eagle sending scientists broke could end up being the best thing to happen to uh, conservation efforts for this species, potentially. Um, And it isn't a moment too soon because these eagles, uh, they're... Numbers are plummeting. There's only about 50,000 left of them globally. So every bit of coverage um, or lack of mobile coverage in this instance counts. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
So a recent study published in Nature, the journal Nature, by a team led by Vanessa Hayes from the Garvin Institute in Sydney has claimed to pinpoint the birthplace of humanity. They reckon they have traced the origins of modern Homo sapiens to an area in modern-day Botswana, which is in southern Africa, using a few different lines of evidence. That sounds pretty groundbreaking. It is pretty groundbreaking, hence the the headlines and stuff like that. Triangulated it using all the evidence and it all came down to one place. Well, this is what they've done for a few different lines of evidence, but it has, not everyone agrees with it. There has been quite a bit of controversy, um, which I wasn't surprised there's controversy because whenever there are big claims regarding human evolution. Human evolutionary uh, researchers do love a bit of controversy, don't they? And I don't know whether it's actually because it is a much more loaded thing because we care so much more about everyone has like strong opinions or it's just because like, you know, any area of science probably has disputes. It's just that human evolution, you know, it's like there's probably as much evidence there for other kinds of evolution. It's just Mm. we we do care about it more. So there's more efforts trying to find stuff, but it's just as difficult. And so the idea is just as shaky. I don't know. Anyway, it's, you know, it's it's it. We're a pretty narcissistic species, really, aren't we? We are. Yeah, we are. We care about where we came from, not so much about everything else. Well, we are the best, Stu. <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't want to go down that path. Uh, but look, it is generally well accepted that Homo sapiens evolved in Africa. We have plenty of fossil evidence of our ancestors and relatives, um, and there has been a lot of work in recent years on the the what. You know, what happened to the humans who left Africa um, approximately 70,000 years ago. Uh, there has been genetic analysis of people all around the world, as you might have heard, that shows the paths that they took. You know, the different you can track the different paths that the migrations took and how they interbred with the earlier strains of Neanderthals and Denisovans. Easy for me to say. But the question then is, what can genetics tell about tell us about the origins, the earlier origins within Africa itself? Because, um, and that's, it's actually, it's a bit harder there because there hasn't been a lot of, there hasn't been any reliable ancient DNA discovered that can answer these questions. Um, it seems like environmental conditions in Africa have, haven't been so far conducive to preserving the DNA in the fossils that they found. So, you know, when you get things like, um, I mentioned the, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans, like the Denisovans we only really know from their DNA, pretty much. Um, there is a cave in Siberia where they found remains. And what about... The fact that that's a lot more recent than the time periods you're talking about, or does that well, it can is it is it, it can, purely an environmental thing? It's, or? it's largely in the right conditions, DNA can last, I think, up to a million years, I think, or even longer. Um, but yeah, it does require the, mm. the correct conditions. So anyway, um, Vanessa Hayes and her team they looked at the DNA of Africans alive today and tried to trace backwards. Mm. So they analysed the mitochondrial DNA of 198 individuals, including Khoisan people from Southern Africa. Which, as we know, is matrilineal. What? Mitochondrial DNA? The mitochondrial DNA. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, mitochondria, to remind everybody, they are organelles. So they are the organs within cells that provide the power for their cell. So they're believed to have been like bacteria that were somehow captured and adopted and assimilated um, Borg style into our own cells. So as a result, they actually had their own little bits of DNA um, that is separate to the main genetic code, which is in the, which is in the nucleus of the cell. Um, and sperm don't have them, so all the mitochondria in your cells come from your mother. So yeah. hence, yeah, it's a matrilineal dis- um, descent. Descent, and you know potentially the idea people talk about tracing it back to what they call mitochondrial Eve, which would be like the 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 woman who's a shared ancestor of everyone, all of us. People alive. Yeah. Yes. 
Haven't they? They've proposed several possible. It's look. It's a concept. It's kind of. Yeah. It's one of those things that is sort of. Is it a real thing or is it not? It's kind of a. It's a. It's a conceptual thing. But yeah. anyway, so the the Khoisan that they looked at, um, they're particularly interesting for this. So they're they're people who live around the Kalahari Desert mostly in southern Africa. They have a one click language the that you might be familiar with. Um, and they have very diverse genetics, which indicates that they've been more closely connected with, to our common ancestors. Because, you know, when people say left Africa, it was a smaller group that left Africa, and so there is less genetic diversity because they came from a smaller group, whereas people who came, stayed closer to home are going to retain the... the Interbreeding gen- and yeah, genetic, well, the genetic origins. Yeah. yeah. So the analysis of the Khoisan mitochondrial DNA showed there's one lineage in particular, which they called L0, dated back to about 200,000 years ago. Um, and climate reconstructions, um, sort of modelling of what the climate would have been at the time, suggests that there was a large lake and wetlands where the Kalahari Desert is now. Uh, and that's where the modern Khoisan live. I might be pronouncing that name wrong Apologies if I am. Um, so the idea is that the modern people there are the descendants of the first humans and that everyone else diverged from that location. And they've, through other climate modelling and looking at other some of the other um, sort of mitogenomes that they sampled, they kind of tried to work out what the migration patterns might have been. Um, but like I said, this has been disputed for many reasons. Um, for starters, there is uh, the fossil evidence that doesn't necessarily agree with this finding. Um, a couple of years ago, there were some early human remains discovered in Morocco, which is in northern Africa, and that dated back to between 300 and 350,000 years ago, which is significantly older than this claimed right. point of origin. Then there's the fact that mitochondrial DNA is only a small part of the DNA that we have. Uh, it doesn't tell the full story of, of your genetics and your evolution. So, for instance, there have been previous studies on looking at when we diverged from Neanderthals, and they, th- they got different results in the timing from looking at the co- mitochondrial DNA and the nuclear DNA. Right. Um, and then there were a few years ago, there was also there was a study on the Y chromosome, trying to look at the trace of the, the Y mm. chromosome, which, of course, comes from the fathers. And that claimed that there was kind of maybe a possible common Y chromosome atom in about 340,000 years ago in Cameroon, which is in West Africa. So you've got all these different lines of evidence other, from other studies that are pointing to different points of origin all over the continent. And then there's also the, the fact that some of this conclusion relies on the idea that the, the modern Khoisan live in the Kalahari region today. Um, that must be where they've always lived. But um, there are also indications that they once upon a time were more widely spread. And so you can't say for certain that where they are now is where they have always been and where they actually came from. So there are lots of reasons to doubt this study. Um, but then, you know, some of the alternative ideas are also kind of hotly disputed. So, like, a, comp- a popular alternative idea at the moment is that humans didn't have one place of origin but evolved in many spots all over Africa, which for some people doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, how that would work. But then again, um, you know, as I said, we know that uh, our ancestors, most for most people, their ancestors interbred with De- Neanderthals and De- Denisovans, so it's possible there were different kind of early human species from all across Africa that interbred, and that's why you've got this genetic mixing. So look, we don't really know, and uh, we also know that it's possible for humans to spread out quite quickly. So we're talking about gaps of 100,000 years between some of these dates. You know, anything could happen in that time period. So look, 
going back to the beginning there, I guess it is a very difficult problem to address, this idea of human evolution. This study is a particularly interesting way of doing it, even if not everyone agrees with its conclusions or its methods. Um, hopefully there will soon be some more data, some more lines of evidence that will either confirm or refute it. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.